Up in the ragged mountains of the Victorian high country, there is a 100-year-old mystery that continues to haunt the lonely landscape, a favourite ghost story for locals and visitors alike. It centres around the Wanagata Station, located at the bottom of the Wanagata Valley, in what is now the Alpine National Park, in what is still considered to be one of the most isolated places in Victoria, only accessible via four-wheel drive, with many of the roads impassable during the winter months. With ancient terrain covered in twisted eucalypts, craggy exposed ranges, and with such European names as the Terrible Hollow and the Devil's Stairs, this is the type of landscape that births such stories like The Man from Snowy River and Picnic at Hanging Rock. Remote, gothic, strange and unnerving. The perfect setting for a murder. In 1917, the manager of the Wanagata station was James Jim Barclay. A 48-year-old widower, Barclay lived alone in the homestead, having given his infant son into the care of relatives after his wife's death from tuberculosis. Barclay seemed to be a fairly nondescript person, a harmless, popular sort who was described as, quote, a hardy and competent bushman, a contented man of simple tastes, end quote. Barclay's nearest neighbour was a man called Harry Smith, who lived at Eaglevale, over 30 kilometres away, Smith being the stepson of the station owner, Arthur Phillips. It was reported that he and Barclay had a friendly relationship and that they got on quite well. On the 14th of December, 1917, John Bamford was hired as a cook for the homestead. 59 years old, Bamford had previously lived at Blacksneak Crake, near Dargo, for nearly 20 years, having moved recently after the death of his partner Charlotte, who had passed away from a suspected epileptic fit. They had one daughter, but as they had not been married, Bamford, like Barclay, seems to have also given up his child, as there is no further mention of her. Bamford has been described by some as being surly and having a wicked temper but by others as being a quiet, lonely sort of man. It's not known exactly how Barclay and Bamford felt about each other, and though the shopkeeper at Talbot is known to have warned Barclay not to get in arguments with Bamford, the reasoning seems to be more along the lines that Bamford just loved a good argument and was the sort to really dig in his heels when it came to his opinion. The last time the two men were seen together was when they travelled into town to cast their vote in the reinforcement referendum, the second attempt that the government had made as it tried to introduce military conscription, World War I still being in full swing at the time. While we don't know how they voted, they seemed at least to agree on the subject and were reported to be quite cordial with each other. Because it was such an effort to get to Talbot from Wanagata Valley, they'd stayed the night, setting off at about 10am the next morning, on the 21st of December, 1917. Before they left, they spoke with Harry Smith, also there to cast his vote, who later recalled nothing odd about the conversation, only that they were planning to harvest the crops sometime mid-January. Three days later, a man called Alfred King visited Wanagata Station. He later stated that while the two men seemed friendly with each other, Bamford had seemed nervous, jumpy. However, this nervousness might have been explained away by the fact that there were reports of cattle rustlers loose in the high country at the time. Alfred King left the next day, and this would be the last time that either Bamford or Barclay would be seen alive. Nearly a month later, on the 22nd of January, Harry Smith paid a visit to the homestead, bringing with him the mail. 
Neither Barclay nor Bamford were present at the time, their horses and their dogs both missing, and at first glance nothing seemed to be out of order, though the doors to both their bedrooms were locked. Smith noted that the crop field had been cut and that the gate to the field had been left open. With the words, home tonight, written in chalk across the kitchen door, Smith had assumed that they must be out working. However, after waiting two nights at the homestead and with no sign of the missing men, Smith returned home after leaving the mail on the table. Three weeks later, on the 14th of February, Smith again went to Wanagata. Worryingly, the only change to the place was the return of Baron, Barclay's dog, who looked starved and overexcited to see a human. Nothing else in the homestead had changed. The mail was exactly where he'd left it, unopened, and the words home tonight now looked rather ominous. Because of its isolation, Smith was forced to spend another night there before venturing for help, all alone in the quiet darkness with only a skittish dog for company. The next day as Smith made the long journey back to town, now accompanied by Baron, he bumped into William Riggle, who was travelling between his property and the town of Dargo. Smith asked Riggle to send a telegram to Arthur Phillips, the owner of the station, to alert him that something was wrong. At this point, the police were not contacted because while things looked worrisome, there didn't seem to be any evidence yet of foul play, only that the two men, who lived in extreme isolation, were missing. A week later, Arthur Phillip arrived with the stockman, Jack Jeb, the two asking for Smith's assistance before they again returned to Wanagata Station. After two days of searching, on the 25th of February, they discovered the body of Jim Barkley on the wide sandy banks of the Conglomerate Creek, about 420 paces from the homestead. The body had been wrapped in a blanket and seemed to have been dragged through the cropped field, perhaps explaining the open gate that Smith had seen earlier. In addition to the body being badly decomposed, having been only buried in sand in the middle of a scorching summer, it had also been dug up and set upon by dingoes and feral dogs, and was now only identifiable by the clothes it wore. It was said that his rotten skull was seen half protruding from the earth. The men reburied the body, and the police were finally contacted. While Phillips and Jeb returned to Mansfield, Smith stayed to assist Constable Daniel Hayes from Dargo, and the two men waited at the station until assistance came in the form of Constable Ryan from Mansfield and Detective Alex McKernel, specially dispatched from Melbourne, the two men making the 130km horse ride to the station to properly investigate and to return the remains to Melbourne for a post-mortem. Once again, Barclay's remains were dug up and bundled rather unceremoniously into a canvas bag. After this, Detective McKernel carefully combed over the homestead. While on the surface nothing seemed to be amiss, McKernel, with Smith's assistance, discovered some worrying signs of foul play. Barclay's room seemed normal at a first glance, perhaps in a mild state of disarray as if he hadn't had time to make his bed that morning, but a quick investigation found a shotgun a spent cartridge and what appeared to be drag marks which led out into the kitchen. However, there was not one drop of blood in the room or anywhere else on the property. As they went through his things, they saw that Barclay's handgun, his razor, as well as his good suit of clothes were all missing. In addition to that, 19 check butts were missing from Barclay's checkbook, but they were never cashed nor found anywhere else. 
Considering the items were missing from a locked room, it was beginning to look like somebody with the knowledge of where the key would have been kept would have been the one to rub it and then re-lock it, as so not to arouse suspicion. A search of Bamford's room revealed a similar story. It was unkept and some of his personal belongings were missing. However, because there was no sign of a fight or a struggle in this particular room, Bamford naturally, almost immediately became suspected of murdering Barclay. As with anyone else who visited Wanagata Station, Constable Ryan and Detective McKernel had to stay the night with Smith and Hayes, where they very nearly added to the body count of this story. The two lowland officers had unknowingly prepared their meals using what they had thought was Barclay's pepper, which in fact turned out to be strychnine, kept in a pepper container for some reason. Something Smith knew and had alerted Hayes to, but in all the turmoil of investigation had very nearly fatally forgotten to mention to the visitors. So they went hungry that night, Barclay sitting in pieces in a bag out in the stables, the four men surrounded by a vast darkness that was only punctuated by the yelps and howls of equally hungry dingoes who had seemed to have developed a taste for Barclay and were now resentful of his removal from the ground. As the four investigators left, the mystery of what precisely happened to Barclay and Bamford deepened when on the return journey they found a horse wandering about the Howard High Plains right near Howard Hut, a small bush hut that was used for passing stockmen. They caught the horse easily and on closer inspection Smith identified it as Bamford's horse, Thelma, though it had neither saddle nor bridle. A post-mortem discovered that Barclay had been taken by surprise and had been shot in the back with a shotgun at close range. He had been dead for at least three weeks, though between the dingoes and the weather it was difficult to determine the exact date of death. There were some wounds on his face, but whether or not this was the result of a fight or from the animal's scavenging could not be established. At the inquest, Detective McKernel said, quote, I am of the opinion that Barclay and Bamford had an argument over working matters and that Bamford loaded his gun and shot Barclay. He removed his working clothes and dressed himself in Barclay's suit, which is missing, saddled his horse and after dragging the deceased to the creek, rode the horse away. End quote. The body of Jim Barclay was handed over to his extended family on the Mornington Peninsula and he was buried in the Tyab Cemetery. It was pretty readily accepted that Bamford and Barclay had gotten into some kind of heated argument that had resulted in Bamford shooting Barclay in the back and then running away with a few supplies. This was perfectly plausible given the evidence, but it didn't explain why his horse showed up later without saddle or bridle or where Bamford could possibly be now. As Jim Barclay had been a well-liked fellow, his murder shocked people in the district and led to outrage against the main suspect. It was probably around then that the Rubens began to spread that he'd actually strangled his wife to death, something that was later disproven, but regardless, the portraits of a noble victim and a vicious villain were soon established and set in the minds of many. While a reward of £200 was offered for news on Bamford, the case quickly began to go cold, until March 1918 when, shockingly, Bamford reappeared. Not only that, he confessed quite easily to the whole thing and quietly fronted the Yarram court on the 15th of March where he was charged with the murder of Jim Barclay. And then, three days later, 
the sheepish police had to admit that this was not in fact John Bamford, but was rather a vagrant called James Baker. As was reported in The Age on the 21st of March 1918, quote, There is now little doubt that Baker is a harmless old fellow, mentally feeble, and knows nothing whatever of the Monagata tragedy. He is reported to show a disposition to agree to anything and to confess to almost any identity or crime that would seem to oblige the inquirer. The police authorities are naturally somewhat challenged at the readiness in which Baker was originally taken at his own bloodthirsty estimation and the understanding haste in which his inconsistent statement was availed of to launch a grave charge of murder against him. End quote. James Baker was committed to a receiving home, the police were chastised for such a sloppy handling of the situation, and the investigation stalled. As the months dragged on and winter made travel and the remote terrain nigh impossible, more and more people began to suspect that if Bamford had indeed committed the murder, that he was no longer anywhere in the district, with baseless rumours beginning to circulate that he'd moved to Queensland. Detective McKernel, for his part, still believed in Bamford's guilt and had now come to the conclusion that the reason that the cook had not resurfaced was because he had, in fact, killed himself. Then, on the 7th of November 1918, seven months after the discovery of Barclay's remains, the body of John Bamford was found only 20 kilometres away from the Monagata station, in a place aptly known as the Terrible Hollow, near Howard Hut. Constable Hayes had again enlisted the help of Harry Smith, as well as the local bushmen, William Hearn and Jim Fry, to yet again track through the land that was now beginning to thaw as the winter eased, the only reasoning behind checking this locality being that this was where they had found Bamford's horse in the first place. Bamford's body had not been buried, but had been covered in a large pile of logs. Hayes described the gruesome discovery as such, quote, After removing the log, the body was found lying on its back with its arms outstretched. The right leg was crossed over the left one, and large hobnailed boots were on the feet. I removed the debris off the body, which was clothed in a coat, two flannels and trousers, which were nearly all rotted away. The search of the clothes only revealed a pipe and a pocket compass. Nothing was found of any revolver or any other weapon. I removed the boots from the feet of the deceased and found them to be wrapped in flannel instead of socks. The skull was bare of all flesh, but there was a little hair on the head, and also a sign of whiskers." End quote. It was the feet wrapped in flannel rather than a pair of socks that identified it as Bamford, as this peculiar habit was something that he was well known for. But he was not wearing Barclay's good clothes, as he had been suspected to be, nor did he have on him the razor or the revolver or any of the check stubs. Too much time had passed to allow for anything more than theory, but considering the fact that the body had not been buried, merely covered with logs, and that it was only 400 metres away from Howard Hut, indicated that this particular murder was done in haste, possibly in the hut itself before being dragged outside and swiftly hidden. Just near the pile of logs, there were signs of a recent fire, though this led nowhere, as there was every chance that somebody had simply stopped there for a rest, not knowing that there was a corpse hidden underneath that nearby pile of logs. 
The idea that the body might have been there for a significant time and had simply been missed during any of the searches is an unnerving yet entirely plausible one if you've ever walked through the high country bushland. Bamford's remains were packed up, much in the same manner as Barclay's had been, and taken to Dargo as the roads to Mansfield were still cut off by the snow. It was there that the coroner again had to disappoint McKernel's suspicions, because while Bamford had indeed died of a gunshot wound to the head, it was very clearly not self-inflicted. The suspected murderer had been murdered himself. This, however, did not relieve him of the guilt in the minds of many of the locals, and with no one to claim him, John Bamford was buried in Dargo Cemetery in an unmarked pauper's grave. And here the story unceremoniously ends, and all that's left are theories as to why these two men were murdered a century ago in the lonely Victorian high country. One widely told but fairly baseless theory is that Barclay was a womanizer whose playboy ways cost him his life, but there's such a multitude of different versions of this tale from every locality in the region that no one takes it as more than idle gossip that's developed into folklore as the years progressed. And even if that were the case, the additional murder of Bamford so far away doesn't make much sense. But this rumour was given further life in 1948, when a little-known bush poet by the name of Bill Y, who had been a stockman in the district at the time, sent a letter to Mr Moore in which he wrote this stunning passage. Quote, The actual murderer is dead, and one of his associates, for there were four of them in the diabolical act, two of them are still living. Contrary to popular opinion, it was not over cattle duffing, but over a girl. She is now a grandmother. I know her well. The old man, her father, and one of the two sons, long since dead, confessed to the priest when they were dying in a vain effort to save their dirty souls. Of course he keeps it a secret, which in my crude way of thoughts makes him a bigger villain as the actual murderers. The two murdered men were great friends of mine. There may have been a certain amount of justice under the unwritten law for shooting Barclay, but there was no justification for the brutal slaughter of Bamford. He was an unfortunate eyewitness of the callous tragedy and paid the penalty with his life after they compelled him to dig a hole in the mountain creek and dump Barclay in it. They then put him on his mare, pinioned his arms behind him and tied his legs beneath the mare's belly, led him several miles away onto Mount Howitt, and the old monster, without warning, shot him from behind. End quote. However, there are some things about this story that don't match up. Firstly, this supposed wrong woman has never been named, and considering that there were very few people in the region, it is unlikely that someone involved in such a scandal managed to keep their identity a secret for so long. Secondly, the description of Bamford's murder doesn't align with the condition of the body it was found in, which showed a sudden death and a hasty burial, not the premeditated image Y constructs. And lastly, and the biggest hole in the theory, is the fact that Billy Y was in the army at the time of the murders. He had re-enlisted on the 8th of May 1917 and was discharged on the 22nd of October 1920. So while it's a good story, he clearly did not get it firsthand, and it is probably just that. A more popular theory is that both men fell victim to cattle duffers, or rustlers, or thieves. Cattle theft was rife in the high country during the war, when all the able-bodied men were dying overseas rather than protecting stock. 
Hearsay says that Barclay was terrified of three unidentified men, and this concern might also go away as to explaining Bamford's nervous disposition the last time he was seen. In fact, the handgun that was missing from Barclay's possession had only recently been purchased as a form of protection, and Harry Smith himself admitted in later years that during this period, the threat of harm from cattle thieves left him fearing for his life. Originally, the police were so focused on finding Bamford that they didn't even consider the possibility of cattle thieves being the perpetrators, and by the time they started looking into it, those transient people would have been long gone. After the murders, the two Bushmen, Hearn and Fry, managed Wanagata Station, and while they never reported any losses, when the station was sold in 1919, it was discovered that there was only about half the amount of cattle expected. While this was originally attributed to a harsh winter, it seems as though it would be much more likely that there was more theft in the region than originally expected or reported. However, if Barclay and Bamford fell afoul of cattle thieves, that doesn't explain why the two murders happened so far apart, or why these murderers would have gone to the trouble of relocking bedroom doors after very politely ransacking the place, in which they took only the most minor items, leaving behind several things of more worth, including actual money. The leading theory actually circles back to an alteration of the original one, still maintaining that Bamford did indeed kill Barclay after some sort of fight, but now adding to the theory that afterwards, when Bamford was on the run, that he was tracked down and killed by someone else in turn in some Wild West bush justice. And the person most suspected of carrying out this justice? Harry Smith, the friendly, helpful neighbour. The theory to support this is the fact that because Smith was the only witness to those early events of January, that he could have been lying about the whole timeline, as well as producing a story about his fear of cattle thieves as a way of throwing off local suspicion. Added to this was, when the final search was being made around Howard Hutt, Smith had, according to a newspaper of the day, told Hayes that he had had a dream that Bamford's body was somewhere in the area. Though whether or not this was used as a basis for a further search, or if it ever even really happened, is still unknown. But if Smith was lying about his initial movements in the case, that just makes things needlessly complicated. Why make up a story of visiting the station twice before seeking help? If he knew Barclay had been murdered, why would he leave the body of his friend out to rot in a shallow grave to be disturbed by wild animals? If he did indeed murder Bamford in some act of vengeance, why did he still participate with police in such a lengthy search for him? And this once again does not address where the missing items from the homestead went, as it seems unlikely that Smith would have stolen things from his recently deceased friend. So the tale of bush justice, while kind of plausible, seems to be a somewhat romanticised yarn which has nothing but hearsay and a hundred years of gossip attached to it. At any rate, Smith was never questioned about Bamford's murder. Yet suspicion still surrounds Smith. In later years, Barclay's son, Jim Barclay Jr., grew up and worked for Smith in Eaglevale for many, many years. In the 1970s, when interviewed about the affair, an understandably reluctant Barclay Jr. only had this to say about the whole thing. Quote, It was all a long time ago and both the murderers are long since dead. I can't see that anything can be gained now, it's all best forgotten." End quote. Both the murderers. A very interesting phrase that, again, 
has really led nowhere. The mystery of the Wanagata murders still hangs over the high country in Victoria to this day. Even a century later, the region is renowned for its isolation and difficult terrain, a haven for bushwalkers and campers alike. Much of the landscape is unchanged, though it's now thankfully preserved as a national park rather than as a cattle station. To this day, you can still visit the Wanagata Valley, drive across the Howard Plain, delve into the Terrible Hollow, and even stay at the aged Howard Hut. But the Wanagata homestead no longer exists, as it was burnt down by hikers in 1957. Now, all that remains of it is the outline of the stone foundation. While it may not be as well known as some other unsolved mysteries, fascination with this remote crime has always burned low in the national psyche. In fact, there has recently been a play about the subject, starring Hugo Weaving and Wayne Blair as fictionalised versions of Harry Smith and William Riggle. And regrettably, there has continued to be enough additional loss and mystery to keep the stories of the Wanagata murders fresh in the minds of people, as sadly the valley has continued to see its fair share of unsolved tragedy. In the last year alone, the district has again featured in national news as four people have gone missing in the area, all within 60 kilometres of each other and the original murders. This includes elderly campers Russell Hill and Carol Clay, whose campsite was found burnt to the ground, hiker Niles Becker, who never returned from his five-day trek, and Melbourne businessman Conrad Whitlock, whose car was found abandoned on unnamed corner, his jacket, wallet and phone all left behind. No trace of any of these people has yet to be found. People like to say that the high country keeps its secrets. And strangely, it's usually those self-same people who utterly believe that they know those secrets, know all the answers to the mysteries with the sort of satisfaction that can only grow from family hearsay that's been passed down through the generations. But nevertheless, the strange and lonely murders of Jim Barclay and John Bamford will most likely never be solved. <laughs>